thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate everyone being here today, especially now that the weather's getting nicer and the sun is out. I appreciate you taking the time to log in with us. Um, I'm very happy to have Nick Morris here with us today. Uh, many of you probably already know him, but he is the uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology. Uh, he is the program director for the critical care uh, program, the neurocritical care program. He's one of the heads of our resuscitation committee, and I uh, often go to Nick asking him many questions about TTM and what the updates are in TTM and how to best manage and optimize our post-cardiac arrest patients. So I thought it only fair to ask Nick to share his knowledge and his wealth and his expertise uh, with all of us. So Nick is here today to talk about post-cardiac arrest care and uh, TTM prescriptions. Thank you, Dr. Morris. Thanks, Andy, for inviting me. I'm uh, always happy to talk about this topic. And in fact, I would say it's the number one topic that uh, when the rotating fellows come through our unit and we go to see consults together, this is what they want to hear about. And this is what we talk about. So I'm glad to share it with the larger group. Um, again, for those who just came in, if you could please uh, log in to Poll Everywhere, either through your web browser or your smartphone, the directions are uh, on the slide there. I'd appreciate it. And we're going to get started right away just with a question. Which patients do you feel should receive TTM following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? A, no patients. B, all patients. C, patients without any response to all the noxious stimuli that we give, like sternal rub or supraorbital pressure. Patients not following commands, D. Or E, patients with a GCS motor score less than four. And for those of you um, who are searching the back of your minds for that. It's uh, basically anything that's be considered reflexive, like flexor posturing, ex extensor posturing, et cetera, but not more purposeful movements like withdrawal, localizing, or following commands. All right, I, I see patients not following commands is, is taking the lead quickly, so um, that's great. I, I agree with you. It's actually not that straightforward though. So some of the different trials have used different criteria. And we'll talk about that. The initial uh, studies in 2002, the Bernard trial and the Haka trial, um, they use different criteria. So the Bernard trial uh, included so, quote unquote comatose patients without necessarily better defining what that meant. And the Haka trial included patients specifically not following commands. As a result of this, uh, the current AHA guidelines use the indication of not following commands, whereas the uh, recently put out ERC guidelines, the European guidelines say unresponsive. And a lot of us in their own intensive care are sort of a little upset that they chose that wording because I don't really know what they mean by unresponsive and I don't know that many people do. Can everyone see that? Hopefully. Okay, so objectives, we're gonna help you choose the target temperature that's right for your patient, provide a bit of a how-to guide for TTM and describe some of the deleterious effects of shivering. Anyone who has spent time in our unit knows that we talk a lot about shivering. A, a quick review of cardiac arrest. I, I think of this uh, as a primary brain injury um, and really it's because the brain injury is what determines the outcome. So most patients die after cardiac arrest because of withdrawal of care for perceived neurological injury. What happens? Well, there's three real phases. There's the electrical, circulatory, and then metabolic phase. Um, basically, when there is global ischemia, you get depletion of ATP within minutes, and that leads to failure of uh, ion pumps, cell depolarization. There's influx of calcium, a trigger of all these cytotoxic events that lead to glutamate release and influx of calcium via NMDA receptors. The cell walls break down. Uh, within 15 minutes of reperfusion, there's metabolism of these free fatty acids from the cell walls that leads to reactive oxygen species, 
subsequent damage with uh, cellular membranes and further loss of ionic gradients. Um, alterations in cerebral blood flow occur immediately after perfusion. There's actually a transient period of hyperemia that lasts about 15 to 30 minutes. And then after approximately 90 minutes, uh, there's significant hypoperfusion with abnormal autoregulation. And this robust inflammatory response really peaks in about two to four hours um, post, um, post ROSC. Phase one therapies have been well studied and shown to uh, have significant benefit include early defibrillation and early CPR. Uh, there's a lot of phase two uh, potential therapies, uh, but the only one with really a significant benefit that's been shown is hypothermia. It really is the gold standard. How does it work? Well, it works in a lot of different ways. And any time you see a slide like this, I think you can realize um, how pleiotropic the effects of this treatment are. Um, if you have some time to look at this, all the green boxes are uh, processes that are either inhibited or, or suppressed by hypothermia. Um, those are all bad things. <laughs> the yellow boxes are things that are um, sort of encouraged by hypothermia, um, and they're, they're very good. So uh, stuff, this is not going to be uh, more of a basic science talk on uh, the evidence behind hypothermia. It's going to be more of a clinical talk. Uh, but suffice it to say, there's pleiotropic effects of hypothermia that uh, we think all lead to better clinical outcomes. Uh, this isn't new information. So uh, this goes back to Peter Saffer and his lab. And you can see this is a publication from 1964, um, sort of uh, Dr. Saffer's recommendations. And if you go down to the bottom there, you'll see the second line. It says hypothermia, start within 30 minutes. So hypothermia is an old treatment. It's been a long, around a long time, uh, but really only came to prominence in 2002. Having said that, we, we knew it worked even back then. Uh, this is a study from Hopkins, from Rainey, Williams, and Spencer. Uh, you can look at, at the year again, 1958. This is actually dogs, not humans. Um, but you can see that uh, patients, uh, so-called patients, veterinary patients treated with hypothermia had much higher rates of recovery. What was interesting about this study and why I think it makes uh, a lot of talks is they actually included four humans uh, sort of as case reports at the end of the study. So it's one of the first really um, well-described um, reports of hypothermia and cardiac arrest in humans. Okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about what temperature. Uh, first, I'm going to throw it to you. So what is your default target temperature for patients that are not following commands following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? All right, so we're about uh, 36 is making some headway. So most of you are still following the 33 category, um, but a strong uh, minority are suggesting 36, and then a small minority say it depends on your patient. So let's, let's think about that a little bit more. So let's go back to the really the data, right? So what does it say? So uh, I think we, you guys have seen these uh, studies in multiple forums uh, over the year, and I don't want to uh, belabor them. But this, this is the, the little data we have, so we should go over it. So we have the Bernard trial and Hawke trial, both presented in the same issue of the New England Journal 2002. Small trials, 43 patients treated in the Bernard trial with therapeutic hypothermia. Um, 
They only did 33 degrees for 12 hours, and they used ice packs with passive rewarming. They actually cooled them with ice. Then they took the ice off, and they got to 33, and they just used paralytics because these patients pretty much stayed at 33 as long as you didn't let them wake up and start shivering. Um, V-fib arrest only, and the outcome was uh, really a discharge outcome, and shockingly, 49% uh, with good outcome in a therapeutic hypothermia group compared to 26%. Uh, with good outcome in the controls. So really uh, resounding benefit shown in that study at discharge, which I think to me is still surprising. Uh, the HACA trial, slightly larger, 137 patients uh, in the therapeutic hypothermia group, a control, uh, similar number in the controls. Um, they use this TheraCool mattress uh, that's a, a little more high tech than ice packs, but not much more. They include, included VTAC as well as VFib. Um, and they looked at six month outcomes. And you see 55% with good neurological outcomes at, at six months, um, which is a pretty outstanding number. Um, you might be thinking, well, why, why are these patients doing so well? What kind of patients were getting into these trials? Well, um, a few exclusion criteria good to know. So in the Bernard trial, they excluded patients with systolic uh, blood pressure less than 90. Similarly, in the HACA trial, patients with a MAP less than 60 were excluded. Um, the HACA trial was even uh, more restrictive. Um, patients that were hypoxemic with SATs less than 85% were excluded, didn't really specify uh, what the vent settings were. And patients who are hypothermic with a temp less than 30 were also excluded. All right, so we fast forward to 2013 to the TTM trial by Nielsen. And uh, again, this study, uh, as everyone knows, uh, randomized patients to either 33 or 36 degrees Celsius. I would point out that these are both forms of hypothermia. Neither one of these is normothermic, and that's, I think, an important point. Uh, these studies, this study was uh, quite a bit larger than the previous two, had uh, you know, 473 patients in the 33 group, 466 in the 36 group. Um, this uh, study allowed any patient with a presumed cardiac etiology. That means it actually did include some non-chocal rhythms. A lot of people sort of don't quite realize that it did include non-chocal rhythms, but they made up a minority of the cases. And again, really good outcomes, right? 46% with a good outcome in the, uh, the 33 group, 48% in the 36 group. Um, this is, these are outstanding outcomes. And, and how outstanding are they compared to what we see in the US? Uh, well, this is from the ROC consortium, and this is survival to discharge for patients who actually survive to admission after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, so a similar uh, group of patients that would be enrolled in a trial. And you can see these numbers, by the way, they haven't changed for decades. The survival is right around a third of patients, 33%. So the patients that do well in these trials are doing much better than your average patient with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the United States. And I think that's really important in terms of how we understand how these trials apply to our patients. I do wanna point out one more thing. Why are these patients doing so well? Well, especially in the TTM trial, they're the only trial that um, actually reported their no flow time, right? This is the time before compressions, before BLS. This is amazing and shows you that probably we're all working on the wrong side of this, that public health measures are really what's going to make the big difference. The median no-flow time was one minute in that trial. 
one minute. Ask yourself how many patients that you've taken care of in the last year had a no-flow time of one minute. I, I would argue that it would probably be very little. They still had fairly long time to ROSC. The median uh, was 25 minutes, um, but it's really the no-flow time that predicts outcomes. This is um, a, a giant study from Sweden, over 30,000 patients, and you can see the survival in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest by no-flow time, right? And it, it dramatically changes very quickly as after just three minutes, you start to see a 50% decrement. Uh, another large study from France, this is over 27,000 patients. And you can see for, for very low no-flow times, you can actually have good outcomes with fairly um, long low-flow times. This is time before ROS, but with, with good compressions. Um, but with long no-flow times, uh, there's basically no chance of a good outcome, even if you have a good CPR. Nick, can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Were all the patients in all three of those trials, the 2010 and then the, or like the first two trials and then the most recent TTM trial, were they all initially out of hospital cardiac arrest? Yes. Okay. So how do you um, get a one minute no flow time in out of hospital cardiac arrest? You have a really fantastic public health system that, okay. that teaches everyone how to recognize possible cardiac arrest and start early CPR. Um, and this is what is there in Scandinavia that's not here in the United States and certainly not in Baltimore. Okay. Um, we don't have that data, uh, I should say, for the 2002 studies. We don't know what the no-flow time was, but we have it for the TTM study. Um, so that's the only one we do, the no-flow time. But I think it's super important to understand those patients. Um, these are the results, right? And there, as we know, there's no difference between the groups, uh, 33 versus 36. Um, but what happened as a result of that study? Well, the use of TTM overall declined, not just of the use of TTM at 33, but of 36. So this is study from the CARES database. It's a very large out-of-hospital cardiac arrest database that our patients actually get entered into through MIMS. Um, and, and Stephen Bradley looked at this, and you can see that from the date the TTM study was published, there was a decrease um, both in patients with shockable rhythms, which you see here in orange, and in non-shockable rhythms, which you see here in blue. Um, both of them had a, de a decrease in the utilization of TTM following the publication of that trial. This was borne out by uh, real world experience that uh, in a couple other uh, studies. So uh, the one here on the left, this is, if you notice the senior author, Stephen Bernard, Bernard of the Bernard study, um, but uh, the primary author of this was Janet Bray and then Nicholas Johnson, I think at Michigan. Um, and at both these institutions, uh, they changed their protocols after the TTM study from 33 to 36. And then they looked back and saw what, what happened afterwards. And they found that overall there was less TTM initiated in the ED. There was a longer time to initiation of TTM from 911 calls. There was much more time spent out of target temperature range. There was more fever and there was lower survival with lower rates of favorable neurological outcome in both these studies. Now, I'll grant you there's a few retrospective studies out there um, that have had similar looks and haven't found the exact same thing. Um, so it's, it's still an area for debate. But I think when you see a, a graph like this that really brings it home, this is from that Bray study um, in Australia. And what you're seeing here on, uh, on the y-axis is the proportion of patients who are at target temperature and what you see on the x-axis is hours after ICU arrival. In gray are the uh, 
patients during the team time period where they were targeting 33 and in black are the patients in the time period that they were targeting 36. So what you're seeing is basically around 90% of patients when 33 is the target are actually at that target. Whereas when the target is 36, um, it's more like half the patients. And, and why is that? Well, it's actually harder to keep people at 36 than it is at 33. Shivering probably plays a major role in this. So shivering tends to peak around 35.5 degrees. And counterintuitively, you'll actually get less shivering if you cool people further. And shivering is probably the major heat generator that occurs um, during TTM. And so it's actually hard to keep people at 36 in real life and they tend to spike fevers. From that same study, um, they looked at the effect of uh, outcomes and they, they didn't see a clear effect on outcome for all patients, but for some groups uh, and specifically those with non-shockable rhythms and those that were hypotensive on admission, it seemed like they may do better with lower temperatures. I'm just gonna try to hammer in this point as much as I can. So. Who are our patients in the United States? They are patients with non-shockable rhythm. So um, this is registry data. This is from the AHA heart and stroke statistics. Um, most of the data comes from the CARES database uh, for out, out of hospital cardiac arrest from in hospital cardiac arrest. It's the, the guidelines database. 80% of our patients have non-shockable rhythms. Um, and I think in Baltimore, uh, we probably have even a higher percentage with non-shockable rhythms, especially outside the CCU. I think if you're seeing patients in the MICU or the neuro ICU, it may be closer to 90%. In hospital, um, similarly, a preponderance of um, non-shockable rhythms. So my conclusion so far is that the patients in the major cooling trials are very different from the patients that we take care of in our ICUs and want to apply that ther the therapy of TTM2. All right, that gets us to the Hyperion trial, right? And I think uh, this is uh, perhaps what Andy was getting at. So this is the first study that was done specifically to look at patients with non-shockable rhythms. Um, this included both out-of-hospital and in-hospital cardiac arrest, making it uh, unique from all other studies. And it, it didn't choose 36, it chose 37 as normothermia. And I would agree that's sort of closer to true normothermia. Um, and so it's really a normothermia versus a cooling study, whereas the TTM trial are just two different doses of normothermia. High level of, of witness arrest, again, um, a fairly high level of bystander CPR, but not, not anything that rivals the TTM study. And overall, the patients um, in the hypothermia group with a target of 33 degrees did better in terms of uh, functional neurological outcomes at 90 days than those in the normothermia group. Importantly, the patients in the normothermia group had more fever, so they did have fevers in the normothermia groups. It's hard to keep these patients at a normal temperature. So let's summarize. The TTM48 study, which we'll talk about later, both groups were at 33 degrees and you had different durations. Um, perhaps there was some benefit, although that was not statistically significant, towards longer cooling. In the HACA trial, 
33 was clearly superior to normal thermia. In the Bernard trial, 33 was clearly superior to, to normal thermia. The TTM trial we've gone over, there was no clear difference between 33 and 36 degrees, which are both forms of hypothermia, one just more significant than the other. Uh, the Thapka trial, this is a pediatric cardiac arrest trial that was stopped early for futility. Um, despite being stopped early for futility, there was a, a clear effect in it that seemed to be there for others, for most to see at 33. So there was definitely more that had uh, patients with favorable neurological outcomes at 33 than 36. And then the Hyperion study, we have 33 versus 37. I think when you put all the studies like this, you start to see a trend. So my conclusion is the best data support a target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius for the average out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient that presents to my hospital. These patients usually have non-shockable rhythms, unwitnessed arrests, and longer no-flow times. Can we do better than this? Can we do, use so-called precision medicine? Um, the group in Pittsburgh seems to think maybe we can. Uh, they've come up with the Pittsburgh cardiac arrest category. Some of you I know might be familiar with this. Um, it's basically a combination of the four score, which is sort of like the GCS, except incorporates some more cranial nerves and uh, respiratory pattern uh, findings uh, with the SOFA score. And from those, you get these four categories. Uh, and these categories do seem to predict survival so that uh, patients in PCAC4 have survival rates, you know, closer to 5 to 10 percent, whereas uh, PCAC1, the patients awake and following commands are up to 80 percent, and you have a fairly nice stepwise pattern. So Cliff Calloway did this really nice study where they looked at patients by PCAC group. Um, they did, and this is important to recognize, exclude patients that had highly malignant EEG patterns or cerebral edema on their initial HCT. Um, the thought was that those patients were going to do poorly no matter what they did. And I, apparently at Pittsburgh, there's uh, a fairly uh, random process, as there probably is here, in determining who gets cooled to 33 or 36. Um, and so they didn't think there would be necessarily any biases, but they did adjust uh, as best they could for other things that affect neurological outcome. And what they interestingly found is that in the group's who were less severely affected, the lower PCAC scores, of course, there's no PCAC1, right? They're awake and following commands. But in PCAC2, there's a signal in the adjusted uh, analysis that they actually might do better at a, at a higher temperature, at 36 degrees. Whereas the more severely affected patients, the PCAC3s, and maybe the 4s, but seemingly the 3s were significant, um, they might do better actually at a, at a lower temperature, 33 degrees. So um, I think this is really hypothesis generating at this point. And I think a lot of us are really interested in this. Can we really um, target uh, individual patients differently based on the severity of their, their disease process? And I think we, we still don't know that. Okay, so to summarize again, 33 degrees is associated with early initiation of TTM more time within the targeted temperature range, less fever, probably due to less shivering than 36 degrees outside of clinical trials. It's the only target shown to improve outcomes specifically for patients with non-shockable rhythms, and it may be associated with better outcomes in patients with higher illness severity. Also, very importantly to me, the TTM trial did not show any benefit to 36 degrees, right? 
So um, it that that's really important. There was no safety benefit, no more adverse events in the 33 than the 36 group. More data is coming. The TTM2 trial has completed randomization. Um, this is really going after this idea that it's fever prevention um, versus, versus TTM uh, or versus hypothermia. That is uh, the treatment modality that really is improving outcomes. So patients will either be cooled to 33 or if they develop a fever, then they will be placed on a device that will set them uh, at 37.5. Um, and they're going to define fever as greater than 37.8. So uh, I'm not sure when these data are going to be released to us, but uh, it'll be exciting. And I think we'll get a really a good idea of whether it's truly fever or is it hypothermia. Um, what I think we won't have answered is how does this apply to hospitals where outside of a clinical trial, we may not be able to keep people exactly at 37.5 and we may have a lot more fever. All right. I spent a lot of time on temperature uh, choice but I think that's what most people are interested in. Um, and we'll see if we can get through the rest here. So other questions, uh, where to start, when to start, and sort of how to start. Animal models clearly show superiority of TTM before ROSC if possible, um, or very early. However, there is a large therapeutic window that may last up to 12 hours after ROSC. There does seem to be decreasing efficacy with increasing delay. We don't have a lot of data in this area, uh, but we do have the pre-hospital induction study. In this study, patients were randomized to an intervention group after cardiac arrest, where they were either given up to two liters of four degree uh, Celsius normal saline um, in the ambulance, or cooling was started in the hospital per standard of care. And although the overall outcomes for these patients were exactly the same, there was no difference between the groups. Um, one of the uh, safety events that was tracked was re-arrest post-randomization. And the group that got the cold fluids in the ambulance had more re-arrests in the ambulance um, than those that didn't. And that was thought to be perhaps due to uh, those patients not tolerating that much fluid. So more of them had pulmonary edema on chest x-rays and more of them required diuretics uh, following their admission, uh, but possibly also due to uh, electrolyte abnormalities and fluid shifts. Um, that weren't well recognized. Remember, this is in the ambulance, so they and they didn't have any point of care BMP. They didn't know what the potassium was, um, and so this really, really, I think, tempered enthusiasm for uh, pre-admission cooling. When I was a resident, I used to remember patients coming in with like ice packs all over them, and sometimes like if they were in the grocery store, there was frozen pizzas and things. And I we really don't see that anymore. And actually, it's had the opposite effect. I think where there's even less enthusiasm to start cooling on early in the ED, which is a problem. More recently, the PRINCESS trial was released in 2019. Um, this sort of got at this idea as well, maybe the fluid is, is harmful and there may be better ways to cool these patients without this deleterious effect of uh, volume overload. So uh, this used this intranasal sort of catheter um, with that kind of sprayed out this chemical coolant and was applied uh, supposed to be intra-arrest or at least within 20 minutes of ROSC. Overall, um, again, uh, there was no uh, benefit to this early cooling, which I, I think was a little bit disappointing. However, um, a little bit, part of that may have been their outcome choice. So they, they chose 
to look at CPC uh, three to five as poor outcome and one to two, so a dichotomous outcome. Um, and there was no difference in the groups, but in those with shockable rhythms, you can see there's clearly more patients uh, with a CPC of one who got intra-arrest cooling and controls. And really CPC one is what we should all be shooting for, right? Um, these are patients with basically minimal deficits. These are patients who are back to work. In a sub-study of that trial, um, they did actually distinguish between shockable and non-shockable rhythms and showed that in shockable rhythms, uh, all of a sudden the numbers did become significant, that there were improved outcomes by either definition, the dichotomous uh, one to two, or just looking at one uh, for those who had intra-arrest cooling. So I think this is pretty exciting and there's more to come. It also tells you something about what we're up against with non-shockable rhythms, that many of our interventions may not show benefit if you look at these two groups together. What I would say is in the hospital, time to TTM initiation matters. Um, so this is a, a post hoc analysis of the continuous CPR uh, trial. And uh, there's over 570 patients here. Um, what you're seeing on this figure is on the x-axis, that's from the time they got to the hospital to when TTM was initiated. And the y is the, the percentage of patients. And then shockingly, some of these patients weren't cooled for up to 800 minutes after their arrival. These are patients who arrived with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, in this study, early door to TTMs uh, was associated with a survival benefit and improved neurological outcomes, especially for patients with shockable rhythms. And uh, I think one of the things we're guilty of here is there's often a long delay between initiation, you know, arrival here and initiation of TTM. And in fact, many of our patients aren't initiated for many hours after they arrive. And this is something in the recess committee that um, we, we really want to get to to improve. Okay. TTM prescriptions, which device and how to maintain. So really we have two main options for uh, our TTM, we have intravascular cooling and surface cooling. Uh, there, there are pros and cons to each, and neither so far has really been shown to be benef uh, much benefit, uh, superior to another. Uh, surface cooling has the benefit that anyone can apply it, so it could go on quicker. Um, and uh, it also doesn't have all the drawbacks of an intravascular line, so no risk of catheter-related thrombus or infection. Um, the cons, well, it makes nursing care more difficult. Um, there's less surface area for counterwarming, and it can cause skin lesions, although that's fairly rare. Intravascular cooling is, uh, seems to be faster, it has less fluctuations in temperature, um, but you do have the complications associated with putting in a line. So you could have a pneumothorax, um, hematoma, pseudoaneurysm, and then catheter-related complications from thrombosis or infection. Uh, the TTM study did not require that uh, sites used one versus the other, and so they uh, looked at this in a sub-study from the TTM trial. And what they basically found was that the intravascular group, the patients that had intravascular cooling catheters, um, they did better in terms of staying in range, having less fluctuation, um, but overall there didn't seem to be any difference in their clinical outcomes. What does seem to make a difference is having a feedback device versus no feedback device. So um, this is a meta-analysis that just is showing that. 
um, TTM2 will require a feedback loop device, and right. So a feedback loop device means that the temperature's patient, uh, sorry, the patient's temperature is being inserted into the, to the device, and then the device will raise or lower the temperature of the coolant in order to keep the patient at temperature, um, as opposed to either a clinician manually doing that, or many of our devices, uh, like the old school sort of green blankets, where um, there, there's very little control over the temperature. Okay, how long to cool? Uh, still an open area of investigation. We have one study here. Uh, this is the TTM48 trial. Uh, again, looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of uh, presumed cardiac ideology. Uh, looked at 48 hours versus 24 hours of cooling. Um, overall, there was no difference between the groups, um, and there was uh, a some a significant increase in some of the adverse events in the group that was cooled for longer. So uh, there was more hypotension in the 48-hour group than in the 24-hour group. Um, uh, there, there was not more infection, which is one of the things that many people were worried about. Um, there's always a however in a sub-study, right? So that's coming. So however, um, in a pre-specified post hoc sub-study looking at specifically at cognitive outcomes, uh, the group that was cooled for 48 hours did significantly better. And I think this is really, really interesting. And I think this is where our field is going. Um, and specifically the areas where they did better were in auditory and visual memory. And that makes total sense because the most sensitive neurons in the brain are probably the CA1 neurons in the hippocampus, um, which is absolutely critical in encoding memories, right? And so, um, one of the criticisms of prior trials has been that the outcomes are not granular enough for us to get at uh, things that are important to patients. And certainly the ability to, mem to remember is important to patients. And so um, I think this is, is really a hot area um, and more is coming here. And so we are uh, an enrolling site in the ICECAP trial. This is a multi-center randomized uh, response adaptive duration finding comparative effectiveness trials. What does that mean? So this is a cooling trial. They're, they picked 33. And initially, there'll be three arms, 12 hours of cooling, like the uh, Bernard study, 24 hours, uh, like the majority of our studies, or 48 hours, like the TTM48 study. And then there'll be several interim analyses. And based on what they're finding at those interim analyses, the, the, using an adaptive trial design, it'll either step down to as little as six hours of cooling or ramp up to as long as 72 hours of cooling. Um, so that trial is up and running and we are enrolling here at Maryland and um, I'm pretty excited about it. Okay, in our last few minutes, we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the kind of, uh, this is really getting to the nuts and bolts of uh, complications. Uh, therapeutic hypothermia and TTM, uh, it's, it's not without complications. Uh, they're really affecting every major organ system. I've, I've listed some of them here. Um, bradycardia, we're gonna talk about in a second. That's an expected uh, feature of hypothermia. Um, arrhythmias is one that people get really concerned by. Uh, there really are not, remember, this has been studied in patients with primary cardiac etiologies for VTAC and VFib arrest. And it was never shown that patients who had uh, therapeutic hypothermia had increased arrhythmias compared to those uh, who weren't cooled. So 
I, I take great issue with uh, people who are afraid of using uh, therapeutic hypothermia for fear of arrhythmias, because those are exactly the patients that were in the trials, right? That's, that's one thing we know. Um, where does that come from? Well, it comes really more out of um, the accidental hypothermia literature and the pre-existing therapeutic hypothermia literature um, where people are using more moderate hypothermia at 28 to 32 degrees. So if you overshoot, and that's a real issue, and then another reason why we should be using feedback devices, if you overshoot, you can increase your risk of arrhythmia. Electrolyte abnormalities, we're gonna talk about potassium in a little bit because that comes up all the time. Hyperglycemia is real, you get insulin resistance and decreased production. Uh, coagulopathy, this is really, again, more for moderate hypothermia, 28 to 32 degrees. You shouldn't see significant coagulopathy uh, at, at 32 to 34, um, although it's something we think about a lot in patients who have uh, intracerebral hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage. And anecdotally, um, the surgeons will tell you they think they bleed more when they're um, placing devices or, or otherwise operating in those patients at, at low temperatures. Uh, infection risk is, is true, it's there. And in many of our patients uh, out of the cardiac arrest trials who are cooled for longer, you'll see increased rates of pneumonia. That's due to impaired leukocyte phagocytosis. Um, and it's also probably difficult to um, monitor for if you're not used to it. So remember, you're not gonna see a fever necessarily if the device is working well, but we, you, will, you will see low water temperatures. And so um, we often will use a threshold of of 20 to start thinking about, oh, if the water temp is lower than 20 degrees Celsius, then that may be responding to an intrinsic drive uh, from the patient to spike a fever, and so I should be concerned about infection. You will get a cold diuresis. We're gonna talk about shivering in a second. There's uh, significant changes in drug metabolism that really affect our ability to prognosticate, and then you will have acid-base disturbances. Okay. Um, so a question here, this happens all the time. A 38-year-old is near ICU falling out of hospital cardiac arrest and undergoing TTM to 33 degrees. They are bradycardic to the low 40s with a MAP of 90. How should you manage their bradycardia? Uh, close observation, atropine, warm to 36 degrees, dobutamine, or should you pace that patient? A 100% agreement. Unbelievable. Okay. <laughs> I guess this isn't controversial. Um, I will tell you, this is not what I see. <laughs> Even in my own ICU, I commonly will uh, round on patients. And I'll ask, oh, why was the temperature increased to 36 degrees? Oh, they were bradycardic. Or, oh, why is this patient on a dobutamine drip? Oh, they were bradycardic. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Close observation is the way to go. I certainly would not warm a patient uh, who is bradycardic in the 40s with a MAP of 90. Um, the, there are mixed effects on inotropy due to hypothermia, uh, but normally you're gonna have increased stroke volume because of that increased um, uh, time to fill. And so um, basically you shouldn't have a, a severe decrease in MAPs. If you do have hypotension with bradycardia, then that's obviously a different story. Not only that, but bradycardia is actually a, a marker of favorable outcome. Um, and this is, a, again, a post-hoc analysis of the TTM trial. These guys were masters at really milking one study for a million other sub-studies, um, but they're very important, and we've learned a lot from them. So if you notice, uh, we have survival curves here, and you have quartiles of uh, heart rates, 
And on the left uh, is the group that was randomized to 33. And on the right is the group that was randomized to 36. So the first thing you should notice is the group that was at 33, in general, were all at lower heart rates than the group that was at 36. So this is just a reliable effect of hypothermia. You will get bradycardia. Um, but uh, what's really cool about this is this first quartile, uh, where the average heart rate was 35 to 54, you know, that's pretty low when you're getting down there in the 30s. Um, they had the best outcome, the best survival rates, right? Whereas the group with a heart rate greater than 75 um, had, had the lowest amounts of survival. And, and similarly, the quartiles are, are somewhat different numbers, but the trend is the same. So um, I like to see bradycardia in my ICU when I'm uh, cooling a patient for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It makes me feel better. Uh, I, I don't panic about it. Okay. This, I think this is something that trips people up. Um, during the cooling phase of TTM, your patient's potassium comes back at 3.1. What is your target potassium level? All right, less consensus than last time. Your lack of consensus reflects the lack of consensus of expert guidelines. So what do we know about potassium? Well, potassium shifts from the extracellular to the intracellular and extravascular spaces uh, during cooling. Um, the risk of PVCs and arrhythmias increases with the potassium nadir less than three during cooling. This is in patients who are being cooled for out of uh, for cardiac arrest. Um, also in patients being cooled specifically, hyperkalemia and cardiac arrhythmias are associated with maintaining a potassium greater than 3.5 during the cooling phase. For this reason, the Neurocritical Care Society uh, recommends in their uh, TTM guidelines maintaining the potassium between three and 3.5 during cooling. However, uh, in the most recent uh, European Resuscitation Council guidelines, they favor maintaining 4 to 4.5 based on the non-cooling cardiac literature uh, showing increased arrhythmias uh, with lower potassium. So there's definitely a lack of consensus. Uh, what I would say and what I tend to do is a cautious 3.5 to 4, uh, just kind of hedge down the middle and be especially aware of patients developing uh, acute kidney injury after uh, cardiac arrest, because that's where you can really get in trouble. Um, sometimes you, if you're not really paying attention to the urine output, or you are, but you're getting this cold diuresis from cooling, you think, oh, the kidneys are working pretty well, um, but they've taken a hit have significant ATN. Uh, and then you see that as during the warming phase, the potassium starts to go up and up and up and up, and you can get in trouble if you've been uh, a little bit too zealous in your potassium repletion. So I, I say sort of a cautious three, five to four, somewhere in there so it would seem to be reasonable. Okay. ABG interpretation. Um, the partial pressures of gases exchange with temperature. This is, uh, this is just physics. So you have to correct uh, your ABG for the actual body temperature. And you can, if you uh, send this to the lab, you can actually do that and they'll do that for you. There's two different methods. I, I won't go into it here. Uh, there's not clear reasons that why one would be uh, better than the other. And so, um, but I think that the key point here is make sure that when you order an ABG or your nurses are sending a respiratory pulling an ABG, someone's documenting what the patient's temperature is and that's being adjusted for. Okay. Shivering. We love shivering at Maryland. Why do we love shivering? Well, probably because, uh, I mean, Neeraj has really led the way in the understanding of shivering and its effects on brain physiology. 
uh, as well as uh, metabolic demand. So this is really all his work and it makes me feel silly for giving this talk whenever I get to this point because you've got the world's expert here. Um, but uh, so Neeraj, while he was at Columbia, sort of came up with the bedside um, shivering assessment scale. Um, using calorimetry, he showed that this, as people shiver more, their metabolic index goes up. It's, it's clear as day. And then this next to this is work from Mora Otto. Um, this is not in cardiac arrest uh, because we weren't really placing a lot of Lycox monitors in cardiac arrest patients at the time or now, but this is in TBI and subarachnoid hemorrhage patients. Um, on the y-axis is brain oxygenation. So brain oxygenation seems to go down significantly during shivering. Uh, so again, metabolic demand goes up, brain oxygenation goes down, right? Sounds like a bad idea. What is the bedside shivering assessment scale? Uh, Liz uh, Nierich defined it. This is important. It's not a visual scale. It's based on palpation. Um, and shivering usually starts in the head and then goes down and out into the limbs. Um, so you start with palpating the masseters, the neck and the chest wall. Um, if, you, if you feel shivering there, that's considered a one. Um, if it goes into the upper extremities, uh, that give, gets you to a two. And if it goes in uh, to the lower extremities, um, or if it's really gross movements of the trunk and upper extremities, that's going to give you a three. Um, how do we treat it? Uh, again, this is uh, near just work. Um, it's important, really important to get out in front of shivering. Once it starts, it can be very hard to stop. Um, we normally start with all of these baseline therapies. Uh, so around the clock Tylenol, Buspirone, MAG, and then skin counterwarming. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, and then we escalate from there with PRN, uh, Demerol, usually fentanyl, then um, Presidex propofol can be helpful, and finally, paralytics. Again, work from Neerage. Um, so I think this is a really nice demonstration. So in patients with both mild and more severe shivering, um, they had the bear, a bear hugger on, right, um, took it off, and then put it back on. And during each of those phases, they measured the resting energy expenditure. And I mean, it's this dramatic, right? This clear change in, uh, in metabolism and re resting energy expenditure uh, based on surface counterwarming. How does this work? Um, it seems very counterintuitive. It's sometimes hard to convince your nursing staff that they should be placing a warming blanket on top of a cooling blanket. Um, but the idea is that there's certain areas of the body that have a higher proportion of temperature receptors than others. Um, and those areas that are densely innervated um, provide uh, sort of a disproportionate amount of input into the hypothalamus. Um, and therefore, the hypothalamus is sort of sensing that the body temperature is higher um, and it's not therefore generating a shivering response. So we used to do this just with um, in certain areas, like with uh, we put on mittens and a hat and gloves, you know, all the areas that are the first ones to get cold when you go out into the, uh, the snow. Those are the areas that seem to make the most. But um, what tends to work just as well or actually better is just placing the uh, bear hugger completely over the patient. But don't be afraid of neuromuscular blockade. Um, this is a really nice study done by the INCAR group. And the INCAR group is the International Cardiac Arrest Registry Group. Uh, it's a bunch of, I think, very like-minded uh, centers that are all studying post-cardiac arrest care. And there were three basic strategies to care amongst these centers. The first was a group that 
basically um, tried to avoid at all costs using neuromuscular blockade. They thought it was bad for the patient. That's in this uh, graph going to be your sort of standard here at one. Uh, there was another group who used prophylactic neuromuscular blockade for all patients that they cooled. Um, and then another group who uh, started with a very similar kind of protocol that, uh, as I showed you. And when patients started to cool, then they started uh, the paralytic. And overall, there, there seems to be a shift towards uh, better outcomes in using neuromuscular blockade as needed as compared to uh, institutions where they avoid neuromuscular blockade. So don't be afraid of it. It's a limited time. It's just to get you through the cooling period. Okay. And now we're getting to the very end, how to rewarm. Um, the truth is, I don't think we really know the answer to this. Uh, guidelines recommend 0 0.25 to 0 0.5 degrees Celsius. That's based on the randomized controlled trials that are out there. Uh, animal studies suggest slower is better. Uh, the only good study I can really find of this is from Japan. It's a large registry study. And in that study, uh, longer rewarming duration was associated with better outcomes. What's interesting about the way they do things there is their patients were all um, cooled to 34 degrees, and then they keep them to 36 degrees for several days after that initial 34 degree. So the duration was defined as the time it took to get from 34 to 36. And some of those centers, it took up to 72 hours just to get that two degree difference. Um, so they really did move things very slowly. So this is another, um, I think, really interesting area and we just don't know the answer. It's also very hard to kind of suss that out from the depth of cooling because it's obviously gonna take longer to rewarm if you're starting at a lower temperature. Um, so I, I don't know, but I think going on the slower side makes sense if you, um, for me, I, the way I think about it is if a patient, um, sort of like those uh, Pittsburgh cardiac arrest categories, um, if they seem to be more severely affected, I tend to go slower in my rewarming, sometimes as slow as 0.1 or 0.2 per hour as opposed to 0.25 or 0.5. That's all I have for you. Um, that's my Twitter handle if you want to put it out there. Uh, you want to tweet at me. And uh, anyone who wants to debate 33 versus 36, I'm ready for you. So we have a few minutes. <laughs>